Let me welcome those of you that are joining us online and also our friends at the Hangar in Montana. Uh, By the way, speaking of football, uh, the quarterback, or sometimes quarterback with Peyton Manning of the Denver Broncos, Brock Osweiler, he is from Kalispell, Montana, so from where uh, the Hangar is. And so we welcome our friends from there, also Arco, Idaho, and then those at Purpose Church and Rancho Cucamonga, we welcome our friends in Rancho as well. Now, as you're turning, let me just share one a fun uh, tidbit is that another young lady with Letitia that grew up in our church, and we're just so thankful for how God raises up these young adults and uses them, how God has used Letitia at Azusa Pacific and elsewhere. It's just been a phenomenal thing. Uh, We've been doing a verse-by-verse study at the Hub from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So the study at night in Claremont is a verse-by-verse study, but this in John is going to be more of a chapter-by-chapter study as we look at different themes one chapter a week as we go through the gospel of John. And today we come to John chapter 2, and we saw the theme, the purpose for the book of John last week in John 20 verse 31. The purpose of it is actually at the end of the book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These things that Jesus taught, these stories of the miracles of Jesus, these signs from the life of Jesus are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So the book of John was written for skeptics of the Christian faith, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And let me just mention, like Pastor Greg did, would you pull out one more time that insert for our AMP conference? And this is such an awesome opportunity. I want to mention it again as I did last Sunday. We get the privilege of hosting one of the top apologetic conferences in all the world. It's not an exaggeration to say that some of the top defenders of the faith are going to be right here in our own worship center that Friday night and Saturday. And then we have Mark Middleberg staying over and speaking on Sunday morning because we hosted the conference. We got to pick one of the speakers to preach at the three morning services. And as you look there, you'll see that it's sponsored by Reasons to Believe with Hugh Ross that we've had here before, Ravi Zacharias's ministry. Ravi Zacharias is just one of the top um, apologetics guys in the world today, Biola University. And we've been asked to host this conference. And what an honor and privilege it is to have this top conference right here in our own worship center. You'll see some of the speakers there. I mentioned Mark Middleberg, who will be with us on Sunday morning. Boy, if you go on YouTube, his message on 20 reasons to be a Christian is one of the most powerful apologetic messages I've ever seen. We've had Hugh Ross here before. Sean McDowell, uh, many of you will remember from our generation, Josh McDowell was the great defender of the faith in my generation, Uh, his More Than a Carpenter book, and also Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Well, now his son, Sean, is one of the top defenders of the faith for this younger generation. And so they're going to be here for the conference. And like I said, Mark Middleberg, not only for the conference, but here Sunday morning as well. It is going to be just a great, great time and really encourage you uh, to prepare and to uh, come and bring a friend. Now, it is a bit expensive, and so we don't want finances to ever stop, particularly you going to your own church in your own worship center. So let us know if there's a financial challenge and there's some volunteer positions to serve during that weekend as well, and we can make that happen. Now, our theme verse for chapter two is actually what we studied chapter chapter 1, verse 14 of chapter 1 last Sunday. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is a 100% grace at the same time He is 100% truth. Now, we as followers of Christ, we get imbalanced 
We imbalance grace and truth many times within our lives. We do it as churches. We do it as the body of Christ. Uh, I believe today in America, we are imbalanced in the area of grace and not enough truth. And maybe years ago, we emphasized truth at the expense of grace, but today we tend to emphasize uh, grace at the expense of truth. But Jesus has those two things perfectly in balance with each other. We're always trying to recalibrate, uh, but Jesus is always perfectly balanced between full grace and full truth. Would everybody put their thumb and forefinger together? Just put them together, just like that. I know you feel weird, but if everybody does it, you'll feel cool and you'll feel left out if you don't. So put that together, your thumb and your forefinger, and you feel uh, the tension there. Well, humans are the only living things that have fully opposable thumbs. This makes us very, very special. And this is the balance between grace and truth. Grace has to do with mercy. It loves to be kind to others, to be merciful to others. That's grace. But it's in dynamic tension with truth, with an emphasis on justice, with a hatred of sin. And grace and truth in Jesus are in perfect balance, and we see that in his first week of public ministry. The first story is an example of his grace, and the second story is the example of his truth. First of all, Mary wasn't reluctant to ask Jesus for a small miracle. At the end of chapter 1, Jesus leaves his hometown of Nazareth. He chooses six of his 12 disciples, and now they go to a small town called Cana. Verse 1 of chapter 2, on the third day, that is the third day after Jesus chose six of his 12 disciples, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. She was probably friends with the bride and groom, the family that was getting married. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal. It would have been a very big deal in that culture. It was a small town, and word got around. And this couple would be known, this family would be known as the ones that ran out of wine at their wedding feast Uh, for the rest of their lives. This would probably be a stigma that would be connected with them. You see, when we think wedding, don't think of the one-day event that we usually have. Think of a combination of the honeymoon, of um, a family reunion, of a bachelor party, of a wedding shower, all rolled into one over an entire week. This was an entire week of festivities that pulled together multiple things that we tend to do as connection with a wedding. Ken Gear writes, since Jesus' miraculous birth, Mary has pondered in her heart the future glory of her son. She has seen the visions, heard the angels, and witnessed his remarkable development. Now as she implores her son, she expects him to rise to the occasion of need and pour out something of his glory to fill that need. Now initially, Jesus puts off Mary's request. It says in verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Now, that sounds like Jesus is being rude to his mother, but he's not. The original Greek word here is ganai, which is kind of a formal term meaning um, fine lady. Now, it is a bit too respectful. It's a bit distant. It's not the kind of thing you'd say to your mother. It'd be like me calling my mother Mrs. Gunderson 
or as I require my children to all call me Pastor Gunderson around the home, you know, and, and Kimberly call, uh, calls me that. And uh, we actually run into old-fashioned pastors sometimes where they, the pastor's wife will call him Pastor whatever, and I say to Kimberly, isn't that a nice thing to do? And uh, she just has never gone for it. She just has never been. But at any rate, it's kind of a formal term, like, um, you know, f- fine lady. It's a bit distant, but it is respectful. It's not disrespectful. He says, why do you involve me? And the meaning in the original Greek here that carries with it is kind of like, this is none of our concern. Or I am no longer under your authority. I am now going out under the authority of God the Father's purpose and plan uh, for my life. It carries with it the idea that what you and I have different concerns. We have a different agenda. Your concern is for there not being enough wine for this family. But I have a, a bigger concern. From now on, I have a purpose for my life. A, a, a destination is the cross. And from now on, I live my life with that ultimate purpose of going to the cross. He uses the phrase here, the two words, my hour. My hour has not yet come. This phrase, my hour, is used seven times in the Gospel of John. My hour, my hour. What is his hour? It is that hour in which he hangs on the cross for his, by his death, the salvation of the world, the forgiveness of all of our sins. My hour has not yet come. And from this moment of his public ministry begins, he now begins to march to a different drummer, to a different agenda, to a different purpose, to a different concern. Uh, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. That is my ultimate purpose. But Mary is still confident that Jesus is going to do something good. And so in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, we need balance with regard to Mary. Uh, We tend to go in one of two extremes. People either tend to worship her or they tend to neglect her completely. And she is a tremendous woman of God. She's a great character uh, within the Bible, but she is not to be worshipped. She would be mortified if she knew that people worshipped her. I remember uh, being in Rome a number of years back and saw a crucifix on the top of a church in Rome with Jesus on the cross on one side and Mary on the cross on the other side. Uh, Mary would be appalled at that. Everything pointed to Christ, to her son, to Jesus alone. And the final words that she says to us here are in this passage where, where she says, whatever, do whatever he tells you. Her command, her instructions to us would be as this great woman of God would be, look to Jesus, not to me. Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, there's symbolism going on here, ceremonial washing. Uh, They would need lots of water because before the meal, they would have their uh, hands poured over with water like this and then poured over like this, and then they put a fist in each hand, then dry them off, and now they'd be ready to eat. This water would also be used for the washing of their feet. And so it's symbolic of the fact that the ceremonial washing of the Old Testament law was no longer sufficient for our salvation and for the forgiveness of our sins. No, Jesus had to come and turn that old water into new wine. And in the new wine of the kingdom of God, a new way to approach God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, now we can be saved. The ceremonials, the rituals of the past of the Old Testament, non-sufficient, but sufficient is the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. I love that phrase, to the brim. You know, so many times we say, God, how can I obey obey you just enough that I'm not disobedient? Or how can I do just little enough bad stuff that I'm not disobedient? 
But instead, it says that these servants, a little detail in Scripture, and everything's important in Scripture, every little detail, it says they fill them to the brim. And I won 2016, I want to be a to-the-brim to follower of Christ. I want us as a church to be a to-the-brim. God, show us how we can fill them to the brim, how we can be all out for the cause of Christ in the coming year. Now, this would have been a lot of wine. Uh, 2,004 ounce glasses of wine would have been produced, and even more than that, because they took one part of wine and three parts of water. So that would be 8,004 ounce uh, glasses uh, of wine would be provided from this, between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Now, I don't know anything about this subject, but I do know that seems like a lot of wine. Okay. Now, Jesus performs, uh, he proceeds to perform his first public ministry. Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master uh, of the banquet, which was like the head waiter. Now, you notice here, Jesus didn't say a word. He didn't touch the water. He didn't say a word over the water. He just, there's no theatrics involved. He just simply wills by his authority to the water to become wine. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, it's the servants and people serving God that get a front row seat to see what God is up to. And I would encourage you to do in 2016, if you don't have a place to serve here in the church or, or on your own ministry, if you don't have a place to serve, find a place in 2016 to serve other people, to serve God, and you will get a front row seat to see God work. And sometimes the small miracles he does in ministry to other people, serving God, serving others, those are the most precious of all. They're way more impressive sometimes than the really big miracles, those little miracles when we get a front row seat. The servants are the ones who had drawn the water and they knew what was really going on. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Now, he's not talking about drunkenness here. Drunkenness would have been a great disgrace in this culture. And they, they actually worked against that by using three parts of water with one part of wine. But instead, what he's talking about here is after a while, your palate gets dulled. You don't get as choosy, and so they bring the cheaper wine out later after the more expensive wine. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, the miracles that Jesus did did benefit a few people for a short period of time. But that was not their main purpose. I mean, if you heal a blind person, uh, they have sight for a few years, but then they die. If you raise somebody from the dead, they have a few more years of life, but then they die. It was really the more important thing going on, even though it was a blessing to the people that did get help, the far more important thing is that they were signs to reveal his power, his glory, and to make authoritative his ministry, to validate his ministry. And so it says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples as well as us for the last 2,000 years, believed in him. Remember the purpose of the book of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
Now, this miracle was done in relative obscurity. Some of the miracles Jesus did, like the feeding of the 5,000, that was just 5,000 men. There could have been as many as 20,000 people there with women and children. And so many of his miracles were done in front of thousands of people. But this one was done in, in front of just a handful of people of servants. And sometimes the greatest miracles God does are just in front of a handful of people that are serving him and serving other people in this way. It's done in relative obscurity, but it's symbolic of the ministry of Jesus. It would be a ministry of conversion. In this case, from water to wine, but in our case, from sinners to saints. That's what his ministry would be about. From ceremonial water, which can't erase our sin, to the wine of his shed blood on the cross, which can make us right with God and put us on a destination of heaven uh, for eternity. Uh, I saved a little factoid I came across, and I have no idea how it connects with the message, but it just seemed like it ought to, so you figure out a way that it connects, okay? Wine contains more than 250 chemical compounds. Wine is more complex than blood. Now, you didn't know that when you came here. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? You can share that fact with your family and friends this week and impress them. Uh, Wine is more complex than blood. And so this miracle that Jesus did in turning water to wine was a very complex thing, but it, it, it foreshadows the shedding of his blood, which would do a far greater miracle, which was to transform us from sinners to saints, which was to cause us to be forgiven in the sight of God, uh, to be justified uh, in his sight. His blood turned the judgment seat into the mercy seat. And that is the greatest miracle of all, to have the judgment seat turned into the mercy seat through the shed blood of Jesus. And this miracle foreshadows that ministry of Christ. Next page of your study outline. It's a small miracle. Uh, One Bible commentator calls it a luxury miracle. I mean, this is not a big deal miracle. I mean, what's up with this, Jesus? Your first miracle is such a small luxury item. Uh, Ken Gear writes, and the purpose of the miracle performed not to quench his own thirst, but to satisfy the needs of others, to ease a dear woman's anxiety, to save a couple of starry-eyed newlyweds from embarrassment, and to provide a little pleasure for a work-worn community. But that's just like Jesus. You can ask him for the small stuff in your life. My friend Dane Ocker says, don't be afraid to ask God for the small stuff. He wants to bless you in the big areas and in the small areas. There, it, nothing's too small for you to talk to him about. Is, is there anything too small for your children or grandchildren for them to mention to you about their needs? No, nothing's too small. And nothing's too small to God. Tell him about your needs, big needs as well as small needs. He loves to be generous to his children. I mean, what did they need with 180 gallons of wine? He did far and above what their needs was, but that's what he is. He's generous. We love that song we sometimes sing here at our service. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. That's who he is. He's a good father. He wants, he's so generous. You know, one little additional thing, and I haven't nailed down the numbers exactly, and so we'll give a full report next week. But you know, one thing I just found absolutely amazing uh, with this first fruits offering is I just happened to see what was given through your faithfulness, through God using you, this is the thing that God did through you, his church, is that actually 
the amount given from the last Sunday in, in 2015 till the 31st, just a few days, about four days, was double what it was last year. Isn't that just like God? It was double what it was last year, and it was almost the exact amount that we gave as a church the first Sunday of the previous year. So God had already provided our needs before we even gave a dollar to the first fruits offering. Isn't that just like God? That's who he is. You can't outgive him. You can't outbless him. You can't outserve him. You can't outshare him. You can't outglorify him. You, you, you can't because he's a good, good father. That's who he is. He's a God of grace. But then there's that other side of Jesus. He's more than Mr. Nice Guy. Our culture likes Mr. Nice Guy. Waiter, more wine over here. Make it fast. More blessings, Jesus. More blessings. You're cool with everything I do, right, Jesus? Uh, no demands on me whatsoever. You're just here to be a nice guy and to take care of my needs. But he's perfect grace. But he's also perfect truth. Now, this story of the cleansing of the temple appears at the beginning of John, but the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke. There are a couple of possible explanations for this. Uh, one, that Dr. Carl Tony, our New Testament scholar in residence, uh, one of his belief and other Bible scholars, is that John feels very free to rearrange material chronologically to fit the point he's teaching on and that he wants to show from the life of Jesus at a particular point. So if he wants to demonstrate something from Jesus, uh, he will rearrange material chronologically to do that. But the other possibility is there are two cleansings of the temple. And there was one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. How many of you, let me ask you a question, when you clean your house, does it ever get dirty again? And so it's no big surprise that they went right back to their ways three Passovers later, two or three Passovers later, and Jesus has to cleanse the temple yet again. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. Uh, now, Mark uh, tells us that he had four brothers and sisters, and there are several different possibilities. Some believe these are his cousins, but that's not a good one because there's a very clear word in the Greek for cousin, which John would have used. Uh, some would say, well, these are children from Joseph's previous marriage. They're like stepbrothers and sisters, and Joseph was a widower. He had children from his previous marriage. His wife died, and then he married Mary. But the most natural reading of the text is that these are younger brothers and sisters born to Mary and Joseph after the birth of Jesus. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, this would have been in mid-April. Every uh, man uh, within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem would be required to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And there they would sacrifice the Passover lamb as a symbol, as a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who would someday die on the cross for the forgiveness of all of humanity's sins. There could have been as many as 2 million people in Jerusalem at this time. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. Uh, William Barclay tells us that they would jack up the price as much as 15 times. You ever notice how much more expensive uh, sodas are at the movie theater? Uh, you could be at McDonald's and walk across the street to the movie theater and it's double in price or, or at an airport or, or some other place where you're like trapped. Why can it be so expensive? Well, because, you know, you at a ball game, a baseball game, you can't bring, sometimes you can't even bring your own food and drink in, so they got you. And so they jacked the price up. 
And that's exactly what they did here. They were making money off the poor people, off the common people, jacking the price up 15 times as much because they needed a sacrifice. And they had a market, they had a monopoly on it, and so they multiplied the price times 15 in some cases. And others sitting at tables exchanging money. They wouldn't accept the money, the typical money that had the uh, picture of the Roman emperor on it because that was idolatry, so they had to change it, exchange it into temple money. And they would do an exchange rate of like two to one. That is, if you want a dollar worth of the new money, you had to give two dollars of the old money. They doubled it, the exchange rate. And so as a result, they were just making money hand over fist off the poorest of the people of Israel. They were exchanging money. So because of that, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written in Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, we have this image of Jesus as some kind of wimpy guy. And you forget that he was a carpenter. He was a construction worker. He had big arms, a sunburned neck. You'd look at him and say, that guy lifts. That guy's doing protein, maybe even steroids. I mean, kind of think when the people look at me, they think that same thing, you know, they think. So I just lift. Uh, that's not true. I, I, I am the wimpy image, okay? Jesus was, you know, a man's man. Uh, he was not, he was more than Mr. Nice Guy, but more importantly than his physical appearance was morally, he had demands. He wants to be our Lord, not just our Savior, but our Lord. He demands that we follow him and leave all of our old ways behind and follow him in the process. Jesus made good on his promise to rise from the dead. Verse 18 The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise again in three days. Now the temple, historians tell us, had been worked on for 46 years and they continued working on it for another 30 years. How many of you have construction projects around your house that go on for 80 years, you know? Uh, uh, 80 years, that thing's been going on. And, And 76 years this temple was in the process of being built. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that 18,000 men worked on it for these 76 years. It was only halfway done at the time that Jesus said this. Now, it's highly interesting that just about the time they finished it, in about 76 AD or so, um, that is when, or 66 AD, I'm sorry, 66 AD, Uh, just a few years after it was finally completed, the Roman soldiers came in and destroyed and leveled it in 70 AD, as prophesied, as predicted uh, by Jesus. But he wasn't talking about the temple. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. There's that purpose again for the book of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now let's wrap things up uh, by looking at two warped or imbalanced views of Jesus. Remember our theme verse? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth 
in dynamic tension with each other. First, some people cut off the finger of grace. They see God as mean-spirited, as vindictive, as always looking to grab a whip and whip somebody into shape, okay? But James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's a good, good Father. That's who He is. And He doesn't change like shadows. When the sun is high in the sky, there are short shadows. And then as it goes down in the sky, there are longer shadows. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's a good and perfect Father all the time. Good, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. So you can ask God to bless you in the big things and in the little things, and he loves to bless his people. He is generous in blessing his people. But then secondly, and I think this is more prevalent today, some people cut off the finger of truth, where we say, you know, it's all about Jesus, Mr. Nice Guy, and God bless me, and waiter, more wine, and bring it on more quickly. Um, God doesn't care how I live, um, but it, God cares very much how we live. It matters to God how we live. It matters to God what we do. It matters to God what we say. It matters to God what we watch. It matters to God what we listen to. It matters to God what we read. It matters to God how we conduct every area of our life, from our sexuality to the words we say, to our language, to the things we meditate on, uh, to the, our business practices and ethics. It all matters to God. He's a God of grace, but he's also a God of truth. Hebrews 12, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. How many of you have ever seen children misbehave? Okay? Other than your own, okay? Children. I mean, never at church. It would never happen at our church. But like at, at Walmart or in the grocery store or at the mall. But how many of you proceed to discipline those children? No, you don't. Why? They're not my kids. Okay? So if God disciplines us, it's because we're his kids. And it's because he loves us. Uh, Jesus is full of grace and of truth. He has tremendous demands in his calling on our lives. He tells us to sell out to the cause of Christ. Tremendous truth. There is absolute truth. And he commands us to follow it and to live it. But he's also 100% grace. He's full of grace and of truth. And he commands those of us that follow him to also be people of grace, but also people of truth. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, let's stand for our benediction. Uh, the prayer room is open. If you'd like prayer for anything, the prayer team, the prayer partners are right over here off the main floor in the prayer room. They would love to pray with and for you if that would be an encouragement uh, to you. I want to close with he Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace 
that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and all God's family said. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.